Welcome to Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal. Along with my co-host, Chris Kay, we discuss and dissect the songs, albums, and bands of the music we are most passionate about, heavy metal. So sit back, relax, turn it up to 11, and let the debate begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Debating Metal. I'm Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, along with my co-host, Chris Kay. This week on episode 43, we're back with another head-to-head matchup, and this time it's Overkill, Under the Influence versus The Years of Decay. Kenneth and I will talk about each album's songs, riffs, vocals, production, and more, and let you know which album we feel is the better of the two. Along with that, we've got another big four this week with Overkill songs, so stick around until the end to hear which tracks we chose. Also, be sure to check out last week's episode for our big four Guns N' Roses songs. And as always, I'll bring you another dose of Rusty Metal, where I reach into the archives of heavy metal and highlight an album that I feel is worth listening to again, and hopefully turn on some listeners to music they may not have heard yet. This week, Chris has a short review of an autobiography from one of the masters of metal. If you missed any of our previous episodes, be sure to click subscribe or follow and get our latest episode every Friday morning. Otherwise, download what you missed, and while you're there, don't forget to rate us or leave a review. We also want to read your opinions on these or any of our other topics, so if you like what we had to say or just want to rip us a new one, send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com or message us on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages. Now this week, we have a special listener email. Kenneth, tell us what you have. (laughs) All right, so our special listener email actually comes from my wife. (laughs) Um, She... uh, she wanted to get involved in this with the, with me a little bit because she's a really really big Guns N' Roses fan. So I I asked her opinion on what she thought you know that the the best fifteen songs were from Use Your Illusion, as well as uh, her big four. So real quick rundown here. These are the songs that she chose. Um, she chose Live and Let Die, You Ain't the First, Bad Obsession, November Rain. Don't Damn Me, The Garden, Civil War, 14 Years, Yesterdays, Knocking on Heaven's Door, Locomotive, Don't Cry, the original and the alternate lyrics. You oh, could wow. be mine. Yeah, exactly. You could be mine and Estranged. Uh, Estranged, she just she adores that song. I was like, are you really sure you want to pick both Don't Cry? Because yeah, I like them both. And I'm like, okay, you know, that, that's a that's a song you could put on there another song you know she's like no no not gonna do it i said all right so her big four guns and roses songs are as follows welcome to the jungle number four number three estranged number two sweet child of mine and her number one big four guns and roses song is patience so you can see where my wife leans to a little bit on the ballad side but that's okay Every everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that at all. But yeah, she's a huge Guns N' Roses fan. She knows all these songs, so I was really uh, really happy that she wanted to get involved. That was pretty cool. Awesome. Yes, very awesome. All right, so this week's Rusty Metal is a little little different. It's not your average heavy metal, but it does have someone who is very is known for being one of the defenders of metal when it comes to that. This week's Rusty Metal is from a band called Manitoba's Wild Kingdom and their debut album, And You. Um, The album was released on Popular Metaphysics slash MCA Records back in 1990. It was produced by guitar player and founder Andy Chernoff. So the, the real cool thing about this album is that it contains three members uh, from the band The Dictators, an old New York punk band. Chris, I don't know if you if you know this or anything. Like some of the old New York punk wasn't really like the same exact thing like California punk. Okay. And this Dictators wasn't even like Ramones punk. It was kind of like that weird, talking, annoying, like a, I guess a combination between like the Talking Heads and the Ramones, that kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah, and they and they had the singer. Uh, his name was Handsome Dick Manitoba. 
So that's where Manitobas come from in, in the band name. Um, so anyway, they released this album called And You, and it was a pretty cool album because it's it's more like a straightforward like metal album, kind of hard rock metal. It wasn't punky at all, but there were some punk elements to it. Nothing in terms of speed or anything like that. I guess more in terms of attitude. They had some hit singles, um, and they had some cool songs in the album. Uh, the album had songs like Haircut and Attitude, I Want You Tonight, and Fired Up. And then the hit singles that they had was a song was songs called The Party Starts Now and New York, New York. New York, New York was a really cool song. I heard it a lot on the radio. And it's just literally talking about living in New York City and the attitude about it. And I thought that was a really cool song. So this album... I believe is out of print right now. Um, you can't get it. And what I mentioned earlier about this album containing somebody that was from a defender of the faith uh, or defenders of metal, Ross the Boss is the guitar player for this band. And I said Andy Chernoff was a guitar player. Andy Chernoff is actually the bass player. So Andy Chernoff, Handsome Dick, and Ross the Boss were all members of, of the Dictators. Ross the Boss went on to be a member, a founding member of Manowar. That's where he comes in. And he's, okay. you know, you know, they're very staunch defenders of metal. <laughs> I would say so. Exactly. More, more so than a lot of others. Yeah, so he came in, uh, he, he actually joined or, or helped form this album, or this band, excuse me, after he had left Manowar, I believe. Um, so he, he uh, or he may have been, I can't remember the timeline. I know this came out in 1990, Manowar had a couple albums from 87 and 89, I think, that were pretty good, but I don't know if he had le- he left by then or not. Anyway, the album's pretty cool. It's out of, I think it's out of print, so if you have a chance to maybe pick it up on eBay or something like that, do yourself a favor. It's a really, really cool album. Uh, check it out. I think they might have some songs on YouTube. I'm not sure, but they still play as Manitoba's Wild Kingdom, and sometimes the Dictators will play as well, and they, they play each other's songs. So It's cool to check out. That's very cool. Yeah, so what is this uh, this special autobiography you got to talk about today? So I, uh, I've i never really done audiobooks before. Um, I've listened to one here or there, but it's never been really much on my radar. Uh, but trying to find something interesting to listen to, I picked up uh, Confess by Rob Halford. Um, he had a, a, a co-writer on that, Ian Gittins, and it actually came out this year. And what a value in that it's 12 and a half hours long. Uh, really great listen if you're listening in the car. Uh, what I really liked about it was it's it's not one of those those uh, stories, you know, autobiographies where it's just, you know, him patting himself on the back. He's really just very honest telling his story, his journey from childhood all the way to now and his interactions with a lot of people, not necessarily, um, you know, putting blame on anyone but himself for some of his mistakes over time and then just trying to find his way through the world as being a a gay man that was in the metal scene and trying to do right by his brothers in the band and trying to figure out what was best for him as well you know in in his personal life it's a really big eye-opener uh, as to how the music was formed throughout the years because his interactions with everybody that was member of the band, everybody outside of the band, um, just everything going on in his personal life really defined what Judas Priest was, uh, at least from his perspective. It's just an excellently done uh, audiobook. The other benefit is that it's written, or I'm sorry, it's narrated by him, and he has such a great storytelling voice, and he has a, you know, he's he's a front man of a band, so he's he's got that ability to to command an audience already. So I I would give it five stars. I really enjoyed it. I was really sad when it was over because there was nothing else to listen to. Uh, I think it took me. A couple weeks to listen all the way through it with my rides to and from work. So really good value. Uh, You can pick it up on Audible. And uh, I know they have a free trial if you've never done Audible before. So that's maybe a good way to pick it up uh, for something to listen to in the near future for you guys. Very cool. I'm a huge fan of Rob and uh, I'm a huge fan of audiobooks. Uh, I used to, and I say used to because I haven't heard audiobooks in a while because I listen to mostly to um, 
to podcasts now in the morning, but I used to listen to a lot of audio books to and from work. And it's, it's so entertaining in so many ways because in Rob's case, and I haven't heard Rob's yet, but in Rob's case, I know he's he's just he's an entertainer. So I'm pretty sure, I'm looking forward to listening to it. So I'm pretty sure it's gonna be great. Uh, I did hear Bruce Dickinson's uh, "What Does This Button Do?" That was awesome. So I can imagine that this one is gonna be just as awesome. And if you're giving it five stars, I know it's great. So yeah, I'm pretty cool. picky. So <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so I am actually listening to what does this button do right now uh, by Bruce Dickinson. So in the near future, I'll probably be going over that one as well. Excellent. All right, cool. All right. So that brings us to this week's main topic, which is our head to head for overkill under the influence versus the years of decay. Now, if you have been listening, if you've been a loyal listener, like you should be, um, you guys will notice that <laughs> a few weeks back, maybe a month or so ago, I did a Rusty Metal with Overkill's debut album, Feel the Fire. Well, this week, it's not the it's not the next album. It's two and three albums later from their their next album. So... It's albums three and four, basically, in their in their discography. And this pretty much, for me, these two albums kind of end their classic era because if you if you were a fan of Overkill's, you'll notice that the first album came out in eighty five. Then um, they they took some time to come out with their second album, Taking Over, that came out in eighty seven, and then. Uh, under the influence in 88 and years of decay in 89 then they took a two-year break and i wouldn't say a break so much as they had some turmoil in the band bobby gustason left after the years of decay was over uh, after the tour i think and so they ended up getting two new guitar players in 1991 for their horoscope album but that's for story for another time we're concentrating on under the influence in years years of decay so um, Rat Skates was their original drummer. He was a founding member. He left after taking over. So these two albums have Sid Falk on drums. And so the the albums have the same lineup on both, which is really cool because that makes a really excellent comparison. Yeah, I, I guess the pre- the previous two albums, Fill of Fire and Taking Over, had the same lineup. And then this one had the same lineup. And then we're going into a new era after that. So I, I, I get what you're saying where like that's the end of the classic lineup per se. Exactly. All right, cool. So, Under the Influence came out in 1988. It was released on Megaforce Atlantic Records, and it was produced by Overkill and Alex Perialis. And people have heard this name before. Alex did a lot of the Megaforce stuff in the middle 80s. Uh, he, and he did Testament's album. He did Anthrax's albums. So, he, he's pretty popular in this genre and in this for, for this record company. Um, and it was also done in his recording studio, Pyramid Studios, up in Ithaca, New York. Uh, so the first song on Under the Influence is Shred. Um, so for me, I'm not as big of an Overkill fan. Um, I just I've seen actually seen them in concert twice. Um, something about them just never really clicked with me quite the same. But when we went to see them this year, I actually really enjoyed the show. Uh, I actually enjoyed it more than the first time I saw them, which they were a support act. Uh, in this instance, they were the headliners. So a little bit different circumstance. And, and to me, whenever a band is the headliner, it usually is, you know, a little bit better production. They have more time to do what they need to do. Just more enjoyable. So really like the show. Uh, but this song, Shred, it's a cool song, but I kind of feel like it should be track two. And Never Say Never, track two should be track one. There's something about that order that just feels off to me. It's not as strong of an opener, even though it's it's a pretty good song. So I, I, I get what you're saying about that, where they should flip-flop. And I think where it's not, it's not necessarily to me not as good of an opener mm-hmm. so much as Never Say Never, which is to me is still not a necessarily a good opener, to go back to back with Shred and then the third song, Hello from the Gutter, would be a better combo, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But I, I can see why they put Shred up there because it just it comes out 
you know, guns blazing, you know, with that riff, you know, it's just, you know, and the drums are just going all over the place and chaotic. I can see why they chose it as their, their album opener. Yeah. I, I like the song a lot. I like, I don't mind it so much as a, as a, as an opener. To me, it has this I, this feel of like it's a fight about to happen, and I think that's another reason why they picked that song as the opener because it just, like I said, comes out guns blazing, and then you know it, it's it has a lot of you know it's, it's got this buzzsaw sound to it uh, from the production and the title. It's appropriate. I mean, they've come to shred essentially, and they're they're basically telling you what's going to happen for the rest of the album. So. I think it's a fun song. I think it. I think it's a cool way to start the album. I I I don't know. I just feel like there's there are more aggressive riffs in the album that that fit the vibe of an intro song a little better. It's not a bad song. I just feel like it's misplaced. I get you. All right. So track two is "Never Say Never." Uh, to me. Like I said, this feels more like an intro song. I love the strong bass. The cool—I mean, it has a cool riff to it. Um, but what what really stands out to me a lot about this band is that their the uh, rhythm section is brought to the front a lot. So you—they're not kind of hidden behind like a, a lot of bands do. Um, you actually get the bass a lot. I was going to mention that um, the bass on this it, and but. The part about it that I don't like, so there's, there's, it's not that I dislike it so much as it, it kind of, as someone who likes Sonics as much as I do, mm-hmm. okay, um, while while the bass in the, the or the bass drum and the drum sound in general is more than adequate and it's very clear, um, the bass guitar doesn't have that bottom end that drives the rhythm section. It, it's it's almost on the same level. And as, uh, as the guitars, and not in a way like where where Jason Newsted got lost into the guitars because he was playing the same stuff, mm-hmm. but uh, for Metallica. But this, but he Dee Dee Verney here plays with a pick, just like Jason. But he's a lot. He's very percussive, and I know Jason's the same way. But the way that they record Dee Dee on these albums. And the way he plays it, he plays in a style very similar to Gene Simmons, where it's an alternate melody. It's not a, a necessarily a bass rhythm, that, mm-hmm. that, you know, which is good. And there's nothing wrong with that. So he has that Gene Simmons vibe going on. Plays a lot like Jason Newstead, and it, he, the way they record him, he's way up in the in the mix, like you said, and that's a great thing because I like that. And you can hear the distinction between the guitars and the bass, which is awesome. But I think there's no bottom end to the production, so that's the only part that lacks for me when it comes to the to the production of these two albums, or or most mostly with albums. this album. To 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 be honest, because the the production's better on Years of Decay, which I think we'll talk more about later. But the mm-hmm. the first one, or I see the first one, uh, Under the Influence has uh, not great production in general. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing that a lot of the early thrash bands suffered from. Uh, somehow Metallica and and Megadeth really got away from that, but but most of the bands that were you know that we all love that th- there is a rawness that's awesome in those early albums, but at the same time sometimes the production was just bad. And yeah, uh, I I agree with you. <laughs> this was definitely better than the first two albums, but um, yeah. All right, so the third song is "Hello from the Gutter." To me, this is the highlight of the album. It's it's a really cohesive riff. It's memorable. Um, it stands out from pretty much everything else that's that's here. This to me is the single, the 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 standout track. Exactly. I mean, this song definitely. You know what I wrote down was this is the single. The song is cool, and the the guitar solo is awesome. I mean, this this song is fun. Just the way the subject matter is is written in the song. I, I think it's a great song all around. I saw them the first time. So you saw them twice. I saw them twice. This tour for the Under the Influence back in 1988, it was the tour is when I got to see them in between albums. And then the show that you and I went to at the beginning of the year or actually in March, right? Yep. So 
those are the two. So I got a, a, a basically a thirty year window <laughs> in between <laughs> in between shows, and I think mine was eight years, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, <laughs> so if I'm not mistaken, they open with this song. It was either that or shred, one of the two. But uh, and they the next song was this one or shred, vice versa. So I can't remember, but it was awesome show. This is an awesome song, and this is a lot of fun. If I'm not mistaken, did they play this song at the show that we went to? I believe I so. I, I'm pretty sure they did. Yeah, it's a it's such a fun song. <laughs> at that point, honestly, I didn't know a lot of the song titles. Uh, a few mm-hmm. of them kind of stuck out to me that I remembered very well, but uh, yeah, th- uh, this one at that point I wasn't really sure about. So, I but I seem to remember. All right. Gotcha. So the next track is Mad Gone World. I don't have a ton to say about this song, to be honest. I, I like the speedy riff. Uh, this is this is a very thrashy song in, in the purest sense of thrash. Uh, so if you're a huge fan of thrash, this is a great track. Um, for me, this song, it's, it's got a cool melody in the verses. The chorus goes into kind of like a, a blast beat type rush thing. Mm-hmm. Not rush the band, but just rushing along. And, and like most Overkill songs, uh, the song, there's a little bit of chaos involved in the song. And that, that that's a signature thing about Overkill. You know, sort of like how Anthrax had the mosh part, you know, in their songs or what they wrote down on the lyrics. And they said, this is the mosh part. Mm-hmm. part you know, where Overkill, right, you know, right in the chorus, not in the chorus, excuse me, with Overkill, right going into the solo, the solo has a tendency to be a little chaotic. Um, but some some of them are really really good solos. Bobby Gibson is a very good guitar player, very underrated for what, the stuff that he's done because he did these albums by himself. There was no other guitar player. Yeah, that's the, that's the thing that's pretty impressive because it took two guys to replace him. When you think about it, <laughs> there, there's a lot going on with what he's doing in general in the band, as far as he he can have a solo that's really well thought out and well. Um, if it, I, like defined and listenable, I think is the best way to put it. And then he does exactly what you're saying. There's these moments of just absolute chaos, but if you listen, you understand what's going on. So he's he's a an excellent musician in that way. Uh, but it's it takes a few listens to really understand what he's doing. Exactly, exactly. And once you understand Overkill in that in that regards then you kind of get the whole thing and and the kind of band that they are yeah all right cool next track all right so the next song is brain fade uh this to me is a really anthraxy sounding song honestly i feel like it would be at home on their early catalog so just really early thrashy sounding um not a standout cool song but uh didn't really resonate with me too much for me, Brain Fade is simple, you know, Blitz can come up with some really cool melodies. Um, and sometimes the music lacks some of the, f- the, the same feel as the lyrics. Because Blitz's melodies are really cool a lot of times. And then some. I, I think the guitar, the, the, the songwriting lacks for that purpose, for that reason. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's hard to kind of like... You know, Bobby will come up with a good riff, or even nowadays, you know, the band, whatever band members writing the guitar parts, they they write a, I guess you could say a, a simple guitar part, and Bobby will come up with something that's just fantastic melody wise, and it sometimes just doesn't apply itself, even though they're putting that together, and this is one of those cases, you know. Yeah, it doesn't so, it doesn't quite mesh well. It's like it's like they're still trying to feel out. There's a, there's a lot of the songs on this album, and this is this is the one or one of them that I ri- I feel that way, and I kind of agree with you. Is that it's like they're trying to feel out who they are still, three albums exactly. in, exactly. You know, it's it, that's kind of weird, and I, I think that has to do with the times were changing a little bit. Okay, they're towards the end of the '80s here. Metallica and Anthrax and Megadeth and Slayer were all established. They're coming along on the on their on the coattails of Anthrax, um, but they they're still trying to get away from being the punk band that they were just five years earlier, you know, and mm-hmm. and trying to be trying to be this thrash band that 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 they've 
settled into. So there's still because if you listen to Feel the Fire, there's there's elements of thrash, but there's elements of just straight metal, and then there's a little bit of of elements of punk. You know, taking over the next album, you get that um, vibe where they're they're using the the punk sensibilities, like sort of a little bit like um, SOD, where it was this crossover hardcore punk and metal. They tried that on some songs on Taking Over. It worked, but they but their biggest hit was this, was was in Union We Stand, which was a really you know one of those uh, call and response type of songs. Mm-hmm. And then this album comes out, and and they they're trying to establish themselves as as a thrash band, and they're still trying to find their way. And you're right, you know when it comes to this song, this is one of those types of an example of that. Yeah, and uh, and keeping with that, the next song, Drunken Wisdom, I kind of feel like it's it's so disjointed. You know, it's got this really cool, soft intro, and then it leads into this kind of plodding track for most of the track. And then there, there's this insanely blinding solo. It's like it's it's like three songs mixed into one, and not quite what it should be. It's not it's not a bad track, but it's it's just disjointed. That's right, and and so what it is is like you know for all the melody that Bobby puts into the to the verses and the chorus and all that stuff, then then you know the guitar and I say Bobby, I say the Blitz, Bobby Blitz, because uh, Bobby Gustafson is a guitar player. For all the the stuff that Blitz puts into the vocals, Bobby the guitar player kind of throws that out the window when he comes up with a guitar solo. So yeah, so you're right there. I look at it this way. I mean, you have this slow plodding song that you know that starts off the way it does, and then it kind of chugs along until it picks up, you know, kind of in the second half of the song. But what what hurts this song is the production because of the sonics of it. Mm-hmm. You know, the lack of the low end on the guitar and bass kind of leave the, the parts that are supposed to be crunchy. They just leave it thin and dry, and and, and so you don't you don't get that heaviness of the song that it where where it should be. Yeah, it just feels like there's a lot of good ideas that didn't quite get fleshed out. Exactly. All right, so track seven just really didn't stand out to me. This is end of the line. Um, I really don't have anything to say about it. It is a generic thrash track. (laughs) Um, To me, there's a little bit of a swing to this song. Uh, The chorus has a hook to it. Um, You know, it's one of those songs that... it, it's, I guess you could say a little, uh, it's a head bopper to me. So it's, it's not super fast. You know, the song slows down in the middle and, and, and Gustafson plays a pretty melodic solo that fits well within the confines of the song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after the solo, the song picks up again and goes into a, you know, another faster solo, uh, yet melodic. Um, but you know, there are parts of the second solo that sound to me similar to Iron Maiden to some degree. Yeah, the, I mean the solos are not bad. It just right. overall, it just didn't really stand out to me. Gotcha. I mean, for me, it sounds like something that's dated to that time period. That's yeah. The, the, yeah, fair for enough. For me, the, the the biggest draw or drawback to the song. All right. So the next track is Head First. Uh, to me, the the drum and the bass opening is really kick ass. Uh, I love the heavy rhythm section on this track. Uh, this to me, probably my second favorite track on the album. Cool. Cool. I like head first. It, to me, it has an anthrax vibe to it. It does. Um, at, at the beginning, you know, and then when it gets going, it, I like the whole thing where it's just the drums, you know, the bass and blitz. And then, you know, then the whole band comes in, you know, yeah, that was, that was, a, that's a cool section. Yeah. yeah. So, and it's got a cool riff. So I, I like the song too. I'm good with it. <laughs> and the final track of the album is Overkill 3, the Under the Influence in parentheses. Uh, somehow this song feels much larger than it is. It's like it's a six-minute track that feels like it's ten minutes, but I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just very epic. It has a lot of stages, and you know, it, it feels like one of those 80s ending tracks to an album. You know, like <laughs> like what Iron Maiden used to do with their final track or, you know, uh, right. Judas Priest would do the same thing a lot of times with the final track. And this this definitely feels that way. It's just like a six-minute version rather than a ten-minute version. 
Yeah, Overkill had, they started with the song Overkill, which was not a cover of the Motorhead song. And they basically progressed throughout the years. Um, and that it's not on every single album, but they have a lot of albums that have a song called Overkill. So it would be Overkill 10 or, you know, 12 now, something like that. Um, this one happened to be the third. Uh, so you're talking, this is the fourth album, this is the third Overkill. Mm-hmm. So, so it was, I, it's the continuation of the Overkill saga, is, is the way I put it. <laughs> and yes, this song is, is supposed to be one of those kinds of epic type tracks. It just goes back and forth and it's kind of all over the place with different things. I don't have a lot to say about it because it's one of those, it's the end of the album and, you know, my head just got bashed in from half the songs on this album. <laughs> <laughs> so, I gotcha. I, I liked that album. It was, you know, I got to see them on that tour. It was really cool. Uh, I, I love the the cover of the album is pretty neat, you know, so. Very 80s. <laughs> oh, yeah. Every, yeah. The whole Airbrush thing. You know, dystopian, yeah. <laughs> like lasers flying out of a skull's eyes with bat wings. <laughs> it's 80s, but I love it. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's just one of those things. I mean, that's that's the time period, so, you know, you you enjoy it for what it is. Exactly. All right, so in 1989, the um, band comes out with the album The Years of Decay. Uh, So less than a year later, basically, or just about a year later. This time, slightly higher budget. And why do do I say that? Because they get Terry Date to produce it. Now, in, in combination, both these albums were produced by Overkill with... The, the 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 I guess you could say the engineer slash producer, so Overkill with Alex Perialis, and then this one is Overkill with Terry Date. Overkill is very, uh, how, how do you say, they're very controlling, especially especially Didi with when it comes to his music. So that's why they have Terry Date as the second producer. I guess you could say that, uh, and it was well, recorded. Terry Date at this point is this is pre Pantera uh, Cowboys from Hell. Mm-hmm. So this is, I guess he would have worked on what Dream Theater and Metal Church at this point. Yeah, he did Metal Church already at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, he's he's not as big as he would become, but definitely uh, a contender. You know, somebody that's that's making his way up in the in the uh, industry. Yes, and the funny thing you say that about you bring up Pantera because the thing about Pantera too was Terry Date had to basically acquiesce to to Vinnie Paul when it came to the drum sound because Vinnie Paul had a very distinct way that he wanted the drums to be recorded and that's why Pantera's drums sound the way they do and that's that, that was a good thing. Oh yeah, so so Terry had to basically because essentially Vinnie Paul is a producer as well. So it was they produced them the albums together, but this album was also recorded at the Carriage House Studios in Stanford, Connecticut. So you can see that they had a little bit more of a budget because they were they were able to go somewhere else. So Atlantic gave them some more money. It's just more money that they have to give back to the record company at some point. <laughs> well, I mean, you can definitely, like I said, you can definitely hear an increase in the production value, the sound itself is much nicer on this album. And yeah. It, it it's mixed better. You can hear the bass, the rhythm section sounds much better. It's that extra money made a big difference. Oh, it definitely made a big difference. The the one thing I I can tell you about this album though, there is it's a little dry, so you you may have to drink some water when you're done with it because <laughs> the the but, but it's not a bad thing, I guess you could say, because like you said, it is better production. The drums sound better. It sounds like, you know, more professional, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they did still do the thing with Didi where his, his guitar playing or his bass playing is at, is at a level a little bit higher than your typical bass player, mm-hmm. which is, you know, that's the way they do things. I mean, if you listen to their music, it's always been that way. It, it, there's nothing wrong with that it, it, unless you want a little bit more of a bottom end out of your rhythm section. So, but that's neither here nor there. So Years of Decay, the first song on the album is called Time to Kill. There's a little bit of Metallica in the intro, in my opinion. Um, but after a minute, that that changes. You know, it goes right out the out the window. It becomes an overkill song. Um, it's got a cool chorus. Um, the song is good to me. It's not exceptional. Uh, it's not an opening track to me on an album. 
So <laughs> it's just it's that's, just kind of It's kind funny, of a, that's exactly what I said. I mean, <laughs> if it's just it's too slow for an opener and it puzzles me for a band that's like that's just so focused on just you know giving you a heart attack with metal. Like this why why start this way? <laughs> <laughs> I I get what you're saying. And I agree. I mean it's it's they they have faster songs in the album and they have better songs. Question is do they go along with the same formula that everybody else does, which is have a you know, the first song in the album is like the first song in the concert, the energy song. I don't I don't know. I don't I guess they don't subscribe to that same level of thinking. That's all I can think of. Yeah. I just I, I feel like when a, I put in an album from a band, that first track better blow me away. Because I am very picky and I want to hear something exciting. So if you if you're starting me off with something that doesn't feel like an opener or a, a you know, just a kick ass track, I I'm gonna have a hard time keeping, you know, staying with the album. So this is this is not a great opener for me. I completely agree. And another thing that I that I, I kind of mentioned to you that, about this song the other day that I had been searching for a particular song that was on this album that had a particular breakdown of just the you know the guitar and the drums and the bass where and, and it would you know it was it was isolated and repetitive. This song and another song in this album have that, and I couldn't tell which song it was, and I think it's this song. But I, I for years I thought it was the other song. Oh, and okay. then I realized it's this song. But that's because since I didn't think it was the first song in the album, I kept skipping past it. And because this isn't the greatest song in the world, I wouldn't get all the way through it <laughs> to hear the part. <laughs> so, again. Uh, to get to get past the song, it essentially doesn't do anything for either one of us. But song number two, Elimination, that song is awesome in my opinion. I love that song. Yeah, huge difference uh, from track one. I mean, this is oh, this is the song on the album to me. I I agree, and the funny thing about it is that they did play this song at our show, and it's so almost not age appropriate. It's almost the uh, time appropriate because we were just at the beginning stages of the pandemic and this was the last show we got to see before everything fell apart and literally this days song, <laughs> yeah exactly literally days and the funny thing about it is that this song's about some sort of disease some sort of plague that is that is you know threatening mankind and this <laughs> this song is just so appropriate but it's a really good song i like this song a lot yeah, I mean, it's a great riff, has an awesome solo. It's just one of those tracks, like we say, it's it's the single song that really stands out above, above the others. So um, I got nothing bad to say about it. I remembered it very well from the concert. It was one of the songs I, I looked up and added to a playlist uh, after enjoying that concert. So it's it's great. It's cool. One thing I want to... Uh did want to point out you mentioned that it had a really cool solo. I like the solo in this album in this song a lot because it literally slows the song down and goes into this this very melodic solo that then you know it, it builds up with the drums and then goes back into the song. I think it's really cool how it just completely changed the pace of the song just for the solo which is typically not the way solos are done and that's really cool songwriting right there. Yeah, it's it's a transition that uh that works really well. It maintains the quality of the song and it does it, you know, when you when you change the tempo, change the beat, you know, other bands like Megadeth do that really well. Um yes. Mm-hmm. And so this is something that like really appealed to me. It's just a good song. All right. So the next song is I Hate. Now when you said that Elimination is the single from the album and it stands out, the one thing I can say about I Hate is when you hear the opening riff, and you would think that is supposed to be the standout track because that, I guess it's, 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 it's done in a major chord or something like that because it's not, it's not your typical overkill sound. And you say, that's, that's the track. That's, that's supposed to be the track. And then when they go into the verse, it 
goes sideways. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't have that single feel, although it's a good song. I like, I hate a lot. Um, but it's a, to me, it it started out to be that standout song and then it kind of went relatively a generic overkill, even though it's a better than generic overkill song. Yeah. Um, I don't know. The, the intro is, is the best part of the song. And then it just kind of middles through the rest of the song. Like, I wish that I could say I I liked it more. I wish I could, you know, just feel something more about it. But I just, it's just right there in the middle. I, I guess I have more, I have a lot of anger in me. <laughs> <laughs> I like the song a lot just because of the, 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 the me against the world type of vibe to it. You know, the, the protagonist of the song is very, he has a very definitive dislike for the antagonist. And... It, it it shows, but at the same time, the song itself could have been stronger for the for the lyrical aspect of it. Yeah, this is another case of what we were talking about on the last album, where sometimes there's this disconnect between the the, the lyrics and the the music itself, and mm-hmm. it just doesn't it doesn't mesh for me. Like if I'm gonna listen to a song about hating something, Children of Bottom did a song called "Hate Me" that just like that's that's the anger that I want to hear. <laughs> exactly. All right. So the next song is "Nothing to Die For." Um, that song starts off to me has this Iron Maiden vibe with the flash of the blade almost. That's where the comparison ends at that point. Um, it's a rather generic song for me, um, and it does have this weird little isolated bass thing that happens about two minutes and 18 seconds in or so and it's like dd starts slapping the bass or picking at the bass hits a bass chord and then it goes back into the song it's just kind of weird like it's just out of nowhere yeah it's it's a little bit of an odd transition um the one thing i will say for the song uh but i mostly agree with everything that you're saying here is i i did really like the solo but other than that yeah it's just a mid-tempo track that feels kind of like a filler Exactly. All right. That brings us to the song Playing with Spiders slash Skull Crusher. That is a really long song. <laughs> it is. Um, but I like and, this track a okay. lot. <clears throat> Do you? Okay. So for me, the song starts off with a, a, a distorted bass solo, very a la Cliff Burton. Mm-hmm. Um, after a minute, it goes into Skull Crusher. Skull Crush is a very slow, plodding song. It, it it has its words. It has you know the, the lyrics. It goes along. It's it it basically is crushing you with its pace, uh, which is cool. And then right about the four forty five mark, it picks up the pace all the way through the solo. Seven minutes in, it goes back down to slow again, and it it, it keeps that that slowness through the rest of the song. It's not my thing. It's a good song, but it's not my thing. You like the song. I like the song. The thing is, it's it's kind of an odd placement for it because it is this kind of big epic song that uh, you know tells a tale and and goes for you know the distance like a lot of final tracks do on albums. It honestly kind of feels like it should be towards the end of the album rather than where it is. But regardless, I'm fine with it, and I I really enjoy the track. Well, at the time that this album came out, remember there's still vinyl. So this is the I believe this is the end of side one on this track. So it's appropriate in that regards. That makes but sense. I agree yeah. with you. I think it should be the last song on the album. Yeah, there there is that mentality to to keep because yeah, it was nineteen eighty nine, so it would have been designed for vinyl. And sometimes track listings had to be kind of adjusted to fit vinyl too. So yeah, that's right. something to keep into consideration. Okay, so the next song is Birth of Tension. Things pick up with this song. Uh, it's got a cool bass drumming on it. I like that part about it. It's got a cool riff, got a cool chorus. I like this song a lot. This is a really cool song to me. Um, it, it has a very simple... This is one of the songs that I believe has that isolated drum guitar thing, the same as Time to Kill. So this was the other song that I was looking for. But this doesn't do it as much as Time to Kill does. So, Well, for this song, 
there's something that kind of bugs me about it, and it's it's that it it is like it fits the title very well. Birth of tension. It, it feels tense. It feels like it's building up towards something. It feels like it's building up towards something that it never quite get to or quite gets to. Um, and that's that's my only real problem with it. Is it just like I I wanted it to go further. I could I can see that I can understand that. And and what's funny is then then you have who tends the fire afterwards, which it just it it has a similar thing going on. Like it takes a while to build up, but then it has a really kick ass riff. It's like two songs in a row that have this like build up, but one actually goes somewhere and the other one doesn't. Right, I get what you're saying with that, and and that was the one thing I was noticing about the 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 album as it got towards the, towards the end. Um, because these songs like Birth Attention, Who Tends to Fire, The Years of Decay, and Evil Never Dies, they're all long songs. And they all have really long intros to them. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much Birth Attention, but you know, Who Tends to Fire, like we, we started talking about. It's got that slow musical interlude, and then it picks up the pace and has like a mid-tempo verse to it. And then it kind of goes back to the slow interlude. And I think that's it's pretty cool. And it does do more in terms of storytelling than birth attention does because birth attention just kind of almost leaves you hanging mm-hmm. to something. It doesn't go where it's supposed to go. Who tends to fire does. It sounds like a complete story. Yeah. I, I really like that track. Um, it's, it does exactly what I said. Like it, it, you go from the, the beginning where it's, it's building up this, this, uh, you know, musical tension, I guess is a good way of putting it. And then, it actually gets to a really kick-ass riff that continues through the rest of the song. So it does something really a lot better than what Birth of Tension does, but they're very similar songs in the way they're they're constructed. I agree. All right, so that brings us to the title track, if, I would, if you could say, The Years of Decay. This song is supposed to be the metal ballad. Um... And it's not, it doesn't have the same structure, say, that Metallica did, had with uh, Fade, Fade to Black or Welcome Home. But it has the same kind of pacing where you got a slow part, then you got the fast part. But this one kind of goes back to a slow part, back to a fast part. And then it ends with a, with a different part altogether, which is another odd thing about this song. But it's not bad. It's just, to me, I don't know. Blitz is not suited for for slow metal ballads. <laughs> I I mean I thought it was kind of cool that the band showed that they were doing something a little bit out of their comfort zone, you know, and mm-hmm. and experimenting a little more. I th- I thought it was a good track. I didn't I didn't think it was as good as say Elimination or Skull Crusher by any means, um, but I th- I still thought it was good. All right, so that brings us to the last track in the album, which is. Evil Never Dies, and E, N, and D are highlighted or, or capitalized with periods. Uh, I don't know what that really stands for, other than end. I don't know if the end means it's because it's the last song or if there's something else to it. I never got the connotation. The song uh, starts off with a one-minute slow musical interlude, and then it just it's an all-out verbal assault from Bobby Blitz. <laughs> and then midway, you know, about two-thirds of the way through it, it it slows to a mid-pace uh which is cool and then it it picks up back you know picks up the speed again and ends out at that at that pace it's a it's a cool closing track to an album yeah so apparently this is supposed to be uh basically overkill four it's the continuation of that that same uh story mm-hmm. uh the and the reason being is it, he didn't continue this until 2007 with Immortalis, uh, with Overkill 5, the brand. So there's technically no song that's named Overkill 4, uh, but this is the one. So it's a little more experimental, kind of like what, what I said with the last track with Years of Decay. Uh, the intro is a little bit experimental. It's a pretty good thrash song. I mean, it it's another one of those epic ending songs, so... I, I like it a lot, and it has that same kind of feel where I felt like it was longer than it was, but 
again, not in a bad way. Right. That's the same exact thing I got out of it. I thought the song was going on forever, and it really didn't. So I don't know if that's good, necessarily good or bad, but it's it's satisfying to some degree, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. Well, that concludes the tracks for both albums, and I'm going to go ahead and, and state my case here, but I believe, in my opinion, the, Under the Influence is the better album. Really? Yeah. Okay. And why why do you say that? Um, I think it had to me uh, across the board. It has better songs, in my opinion. I, I guess the 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 hits are better hits. I guess you could say in that regards. You know, I know in, in the show that we went to, they both played "Hello from the Gutter" from Influence, and they played "Elimination" from this one. Those are the only songs that they played from this era, uh, from what I can see. But I don't know. I, I to me, I, I guess maybe because I was more into this album at the time, that it, it's personally it feels better. It, it feels better to me. Gotcha. Um, well, I actually disagree with you this week. Years of Decay, I think overall to me is a better album. It does a few things that I just enjoy better. Where there's a little bit more experimentation. I like more of the tracks on this one as a whole. And the production just sounds better. One other thing that I really enjoy about it is, like I said earlier, the, the, the low end, being able to hear them more defined is nicer. And then what Bobby Gustafson does here on guitar, I think, is more uh, cohesive and, and works a little bit better with the band. Even though, after this point, he would leave the band and... It would, they would have to change things up in general, but it, it felt like they kind of were more hitting their stride with this lineup by this time. It's just, you know, it it is what it is. When, when musicians sometimes don't mesh anymore or they want to go in different directions, it just doesn't work out. But to me, this this felt like the the most defined album from this lineup. See, now I can I can agree with you on on, on that regard because I I do they, they the maturity showed through mm-hmm. through every album. Completely agree with you there. The the reason I just picked under the influence is just, it, I guess it's more personal to me. You know, I was I was oh absolutely yeah. I was in that scene at that time and that was my thing. By the time this album came out, for me, even though I had just seen Overkill earlier, there's something that was lacking. I guess to me, you know, elimination and and I hate weren't as strong as shred and hello from the gutter to me, in my opinion. But gotcha, you know, that's the way I feel about it anyway. So cool. Uh, There's one one other note that I wanted to bring up, and that's uh, so that we mentioned that Terry Date was on this album and Pantera, uh, he had produced Cowboys from Hell from Pantera. Apparently one of the reasons they actually hired uh, Terry Date on this album was because Dimebag Daryl was a huge fan of Bobby Gustafson's uh, guitar tone on this album and they thought it was a great fit. So, oh, That's awesome. I mean, I do like the production much better on this album than, than on, on Influence, that's for sure. Um, so yeah, that's pretty cool uh, little... A tidbit there because I I noticed a lot there's producers are picked because bands like the way this producer recorded certain parts of the tracks like for instance Metallica picked Bob Rock because of what he did for Molly Crew and Tommy Lee's drum sound yet somehow some way Metallica figured a way to fuck that up <laughs> <laughs> and not not so much because obviously that the biggest album you know one of the biggest metal albums of all time is is the black album but it doesn't sound the same as say dr feelgood you know dr feelgood to me has a better sound than metallica's black album although load and reload sound closer to dr feelgood than the black album does but that's the same way you know like i think it was um that's the reason why a lot of people use ross robinson that are in that that new metal category, Slipknot mm-hmm. used them. You know, he's a good producer as well. Um, and and what I find funny when these bands do this, oh, I want I want this guy to produce us, and then they go in and then they don't let him do what he does. All of a sudden now, <laughs> yeah, it's true. You know, it's, it's like you picked him for a reason, but yet you're not going to let him do what he does. So that that makes no sense. And why'd you pick him for? 
you know, if you're going to tell him what you wanted to do, you know, don't pick him. But well, it's sometimes it's, and, and it's actually something I learned through listening to a couple of these audiobooks. Sometimes it's not necessarily the band who picks the producer for the album. It's the record company says, Hey, this is what we think you should do, you know, going into your next project. So who knows if, if, you know, if it was their decision or if they were, they were lassoed with the guy or, you know, what, it just depends on the band. Like a band like Pantera was so forceful about everything that they did. So it just depends. Oh, no, I, I agree with you. And I, and I know the, the types of bands you're talking about and they're usually younger bands and they're usually, you know, the ones that where the record company has a lot of control over them. But when mm-hmm. you have, when you have bands like same, same thing happened, for instance, the guy who uh, I forgot who's produced uh, Motley Crue's Theater Pain. If I'm not mistaken, that's the same guy. Uh, it's, it's Tom Worman, I think, was the guy who did that. Tom Worman produced Motley Crue's Theater of Pain album, but then he went and he produced Twist's Sister, the Stay Hungry album. And Twist's Sister didn't have a lot of pull, you could you could say, in 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 the industry at the time. They were just basically trying to survive but they came up with this great album and they say, you know, years later they say, Oh, you know, we, we had to listen to them, but you know, we put our foot down because they didn't want to include, we're not going to take it. They didn't like, I want to rock, you know, and they wanted us to record covers, Mm. you know, and, and Tom Werman has come out and said, that's bullshit. It's not true. We liked the songs, but we didn't, you know, the, 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 just the, I guess the demos weren't there. So they weren't really into the songs. And, it wasn't Tom's idea to sit there and do, to have them do covers. It was the record companies looking for a hit single, but they, they refused. Now they acquiesced the next album because they had already done a cover on a, on an EP. That's that song, um, leader of the pack. So they decided to put it, to re-record it and put it on the next album. Horrible idea for Twisted Sister. So <laughs> horrible, but it was a cool version on the EP when it when it sounded real rough and raw and stuff like that but when yeah. they, they overproduced it and then they used it was just a terrible version and it wasn't a good song to be a cover to begin with because they had to re, re you know redo the the gender of the song uh to kind of reverse the roles and it, it didn't work it worked as an ep on a on a on a, on a song that's the first before the first album comes out just because it's something they threw together. But when now you've become a serious band five years into your career, that's not the kind of cover you want to be doing. Yeah. You know, so, and very similar to kiss did a very similar thing in, on their love gun album. They did the song from the, I think it's the Ronettes or something from the fifties or sixties. They did the song. And then she kissed me, which again, they had to change the, the genders because the original song was, then he kissed me. And it made no sense for Kiss to be doing that song at that time. There was a lot of strange decisions that Kiss made over the years. <laughs> exactly. All right. So that's our rant about producers. <laughs> anyway, so that brings us to this week's big four overkill songs. I believe I went first on Guns N' Roses, so I think you should go first in this one. Okay. All right, so for my number four, it's uh, one of the songs, like I said, that really stuck out to me uh, when we went to see Overkill this year, and that was Elimination from Years in Decay that we just talked about. It's a really cool track. I, I just like the, the general theme of it, and you know we talked enough about it, I think, before to for, for you to get the idea. Uh-huh. Um, so for number three, I picked The Armorist off of White Devil Armory. Um, what a cool track. Uh, just, I, it's funny to me that a lot of these bands that, that became big in the eighties with, with thrash, um, a lot of times I like what they're doing now better than what they did back then, even though, um, I like both. It just depends on, on the band per se. Um, cause obviously I love Megadeth in their early form, you know, you know, formational years. Uh, but I, you know, didn't really care for the middle so much uh but then they got me back in the recent years with some of the the albums so mm-hmm. um the same kind of scenario uh i i think it's a 
really telling sign that I've got songs off of uh, pretty much their whole career here. So shows that they they uh, have stayed consistent and have really done some great things over the years. Number two is Goddamn Trouble off of the Grinding Wheel. <laughs> it's just an, another really cool track. If you haven't listened to it, anything from you know that time period of of the band, but you were a, a fan from early on, um, give it a try because these songs are just as good as some of the early stuff. They really are. Uh, and then for tra- for number one, Bring Me the Night off of Ironbound. It's a good song. It's a really good song. So if you know anything about what I've said about, uh, say, Queensryche, where I felt like early in their career uh, they may not have been quite what I'm into now, but over time they, they've changed things up and, and, you know, really found that stride that opened up. Like maybe, maybe they didn't quite feel it, you know, towards the middle of their career because of what was going on with, with, uh, Jeff Tate and his control over the band. I don't think it was necessarily the same thing that happened with, with overkill by any means, but there was like a renewed drive when I felt listening to this album, there's something about, you know, maybe like the, that feeling of, you know, the thrash bands are quite taken as seriously, etc. So in today's era, I guess. And so there's something about this album that just, it's just so angry and kicks ass and bring me the night just represented all of that to me. So awesome. just what a, what a great track. I, I, I love that song too. Here's a funny thing about what you were just talking about. And this is, this is kind of strange to say because you don't really get this very often. But Overkill had a really good promising career to start off with. And it started off in, in 84 and then 85. They had their first record. And then it, it lasted for six, seven years into the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And then from the, the, the early, from the 90s into the 2000s, it was not kind. They had an 18-year period where they didn't really do much as in terms of of getting better they had a lot of turnover in in the in the in the group they had a lot of generic albums and they just they they got they kind of got lost in the scene you know thrash was not very well liked in the middle late 90s and early 2000s but in 2010 with the release of ironbound they have rejuvenated their career and these last five albums have been excellent. Excellent. Mm-hmm. All of them have been great albums. I mean, maybe one might have been a little bit less than the other, but Ironbound, The Electric Age is a very good album. The White Devil Armory is a very good album. The Grinding Wheels got some great songs on it. And the, and the new one, Wings of War. And what Wings of War is even better about is that it has Jason Bittner, so the songwriting and the production got so much better. And, and more professional, I guess you could say. And, yeah. And they it, they even acknowledged that that there was a there was a sense of professionalism that Jason brought to it because he's such a musician's musician that mm-hmm. that it stepped up Bobby and Dee Dee's game. So that that's that tells you something. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. Ironbound's an amazing album. I mean, when I heard that album, I couldn't put it down. I I, I listened to it over and over and over again. Um, yeah, there's just something different from what came before. Like Immortalis, I listened to some of the tracks off of, and and I liked it. But it was it was almost like what happened with Megadeth once they hit uh, what was that album um, Super Collider, where it was like they were they just weren't quite where they needed to be, mm-hmm. and then Ironbound hits, and it's like whoa, yeah, there was such a you distinct know. difference. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, that's awesome, and they they've been they've been great ever since. So you know, so the 2010s, you know, these last ten years have been very good to them. All right, so my big four Overkill songs. Now I have to admit, my my big four Overkill songs do not go out of a certain time frame, but that doesn't mean I don't like this newer time frame. It just means that the four songs that I'm picking tonight are more of a favorite to me than say an iron uh, an ironbound type song or bring me the night although i like them so they're probably you know the bring me the night and ironbound and goddamn trouble and those are all probably in my top 10 to top 15 
because there's a lot of other songs I like as well. And But these songs, my big four, are the ones that are near and dear to my heart. Number four, Hello from the Gutter. I, I had difficulty coming up with this one. This was either four or five. Um, I, I actually changed it tonight. I had a different number four than, than this hmm. one. But re- re- remembering this album, I said, I got to put the song in there. Uh, number three, Elimination. So two songs we've talked about tonight. Elimination is just an amazing song. I listened to it on the way home from work on Friday, and I was like, you know what? I have to put this song in the, in the big four. <laughs> it is it is just a cool song. It, the, 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 the chaoticness of the fact that this guy just discovered that he's got some disease that's going to kill him, and he's freaking out about it. You know, it's just the, the the insanity of it is so cool. It's it's a little close to home nowadays. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Number two is a song called Coma, the hit, the the lead track off of Horoscope. I love that song. Um, just the whole slow intro it's it that song to me is an intro song it, it is a perfect like concert intro song you have this really slow interlude it is it is building and building and building and then you think it's going to build and it stops and then it build i mean you think it's going to start and then it stops again and kind of builds again and then it goes quiet and then it kicks your ass with the double bass i love that song my number one song, however, is In Union We Stand off of the Taking Over album. It was the first video I saw from Overkill. It was the first song I knew from Overkill. It was super cool. The album is a great album, but that song stands out. That's the, that's the standout song. That's the one that says, oh, that's the single, In Union We Stand, my favorite. And I'm disappointed they don't play it in concert that much anymore. But that one's my, my favorite. Nice. But I do got to say this, <clears throat> for all this, the, the stuff that overkills this thrash band and they do a lot more serious music now, they do have a really, really cool sense of humor and they've done really fun songs. So they did the song, Fuck You, <laughs> right after uh, the Taking Over album. And that song, they had, you know, they had some, uh, whatchamacallit, samples uh, at the end of the song it's just one of these things where it's a fun song. They played it at our show and it's a call and response song. And then they did songs like old school and welcome to the garden state. I mean, it's things, songs like that are, are, that's, that's what keeps them fun and not getting too serious. I love those songs. Yep. Well, that's it for debating metal. Make sure you to tune in next week when we take you back to the 80s with another head-to-head. It's a battle between two of Motley Crue's biggest albums with Shout at the Devil versus Dr. Feelgood. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe, and remember, always turn it up to 11. See ya. (laughs) 